Hey there, language lovers. Shannon Kennedy here with my co-host, Benny Lewis. And in this episode of the Language Hacking Podcast, we're chatting with Chuck Smith, the founder of Amikumu, contributor to the Duolingo Esperanto course and founder of the Esperanto Wikipedia. He's based in Berlin and speaks several languages, including German, French, and Polish. In this discussion, we cover what Esperanto is and its history, why you should learn Esperanto, does learning Esperanto really help you learn other languages, We talk about the Esperanto culture and evening out the language playing field, how Amikumu came about and how it's adapted to the pandemic, why a grammar book may not be the best way to reach your goal. All of the links and resources for this episode are available in the show notes. If you enjoy this episode of the podcast, we appreciate your reviews. You can share your thoughts over at languagehacking.com slash review. Now onto our interview with Chuck. The links and resources mentioned in this episode can be found at languagehacking.com forward slash 38. Welcome to the Language Hacking Podcast from Fluent in Three Months. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Language Hacking Podcast. And uh, today we've got a good friend of mine, Chuck Smith, who's joining us. And uh, Chuck has a very interesting range of things to talk about, but um, I know him because of the Esperanto community. And of course, we're, we're doing this uh, interview in English. But Chuck and I have actually spoken uh, almost exclusively over the years in Esperanto. And um, it's uh, a very interesting language. And uh, through Chuck, I want us to uh, talk about it a little bit and its community and uh, a lot of things you may not know about the language. So... With that in mind, thanks so much, Chuck, for joining us. You're welcome. And I think I was even at the first event that you attended in the Czech Republic. That is correct. Yeah. The very first time I ever got exposed to, to Esperanto is, uh, I think that's probably when I first met you. Yes, that's right. So for people who don't know, uh, could you tell us, like, what is Esperanto and how did you personally get involved with the language? So Esperanto is an international language. So the idea is that it um, has very few irregularities. So one thing, if you've learned a lot of languages, one thing you'll notice is that the first thing you tend to forget are the irregularities in a language. So I've been shocked at people who will come to Esperanto, like they've done nothing for, say, five years. And they come back and they write me an email and they say at the end, uh, I'm sorry for all the mistakes. And I'm like, you made like two. <laughs> so because it's the irregularities that you tend to forget in languages. But because Esperanto has so few, um, that's not an issue. So it's been around since 1887. Uh, Zamenhof um, published it and uh, uh, basically the basics of it. And then it's evolved as a natural language since then. And it's just been fascinating to see how the language is evolving naturally through um, use across the world. And in addition to Esperanto, you speak other languages. So could you let us know a little bit about how you got into language learning in general and then maybe how that led into you getting into Esperanto? Sure. So the first language I actually started learning was uh, sign language because my uh, mom was an amateur interpreter. So and then we said, uh, let's, you know, let's learn this and we have our own little secret language, too, or also useful in situations like you're across the, the library or one time I was at a friend's house and we t- communicated through a glass door and my friend never knew that we even talked <laughs> anything. But uh, yeah, unfortunately, it wasn't um, pure ASL, but it was some some mix. But um, that sort of gave me the language bug. And then um, so I learned Spanish in high school and uh, then um, started picking up German on my own. So I started getting this feel of um, 
that was uh, teach yourself instant German back in the day. So back in my college days, just um, realizing that I could learn myself through a book. And that was before all the um, amazing internet resources we have today are available. So um, yeah, and then it just sort of just grew from there. I found out about Esperanto. I was um, taking a class in artificial intelligence and I was actually writing an, a paper on how um, computers could learn languages. And I really thought the idea of Esperanto was really stupid, but I was like, well, this makes sense for computers because they could uh, pick up this language without um, irregularities really well. And then I was looking online and I saw, oh, there's something called Pasporta Servo. That's a hospitality network for Esperanto speakers that's been around since the 60s. So way before, um, what's the new one? That's um, uh, couch surfing. Couch surfing yeah. and the like. Not, not so new, but <laughs> relatively. Um, and then... I just went from there. I mean, Esperanto also, you interact with people from so many different countries that um, you then start to wonder like, um, oh, we need to like dabble in some Dutch because, well, I actually ended up working as a volunteer at the um, uh, Esperanto youth organization in um, the Netherlands. So then just having the language for the street is good. And um, then French, actually through that position, I ended up getting into a three-week uh, French course at the uh, Council of Europe. So then that was quite fascinating as well. So I'm not one of these polyglots who've picked up languages just because, oh, Swahili looks cool, I'm going to learn that. <laughs> but but it's more the, um, I see a reason to learn this language, and so I'm going to start learning it. And, and usually, I mean, to be honest, this year I haven't, or last year, I haven't been learning much because um, usually my inspiration is um, traveling to a foreign country. And with and last year was actually the only year I can remember that I've actually stayed in Germany the entire year. So just wasn't that motivation. But when COVID lightens up and I can start traveling again, I'm, I'll probably go to Amsterdam sometime this year. So I'll pick up uh, my Dutch again and start um, wiping the dust off. <laughs> so it's kind of a quick whirlwind background of languages i probably even forgot one but uh yeah absolutely and you'll get back into learning those new languages for upcoming travels um swinging back to esperanto like esperanto being an artificial language it doesn't have a country that you can go to so a very big question a lot of people would have is why would you even bother learning esperanto because you can't go to esperanto land so the first thing I would say is that, uh, well, my reason to begin with was the Passport Cerro, the hospitality network, because I thought it was just this amazing opportunity to not force the world to speak English, basically. But, uh, and I sort of made a joke that um, by learning Esperanto, I give um, people I meet the choice of which international language they want to speak with me, English or Esperanto. So, um, and Esperanto is more fair. And I found that when I've talk with um, other fluent Esperanto speakers and sometimes we get in a situation where we have to speak English for some reason and then it's like well they don't sound as intelligent as they did when we were speaking Esperanto and uh, yeah this is crazy situations like that come up um, uh, otherwise what I think is fascinating I mean right now it's not such a big um, pull because of uh, the um, the pandemic but uh, going to international events with um, say you're with uh, 300 other young people from I mean, 50 countries and pretty much no one's speaking their native language. I mean, there's a, about uh, maybe a couple thousand people who speak Esperanto as a native language, but they also don't have any um, extra benefit in the community. They're not seen as like the experts just because it's their native language as it works for other languages. And often people who are native speakers don't even speak it as well because they haven't dedicated the time into really like going into grammar books and properly learning and deeply diving into the language like um, 
well, like I guess me or someone else who's um, really been working in the language. So one of the other reasons that I've heard about why someone might want to learn Esperanto is that in learning Esperanto, it makes learning other languages easy. Um, so I have a kind of two part question for you and it, um, hopefully it's not super challenging, but the first part is, um, have you found that to be true in your experience that it makes it easier to learn other languages? And then two, the same argument can be made for learning any other language that after you learn your first language, other languages become easy. So why would you advocate learning Esperanto over a language that's maybe spoken somewhere specifically or has a location tied to it? So I think the best example is that um, learning Esperanto first is basically almost like your training wheel language. So even though it is useful on its own, it's also useful as a way to, and also to build confidence. Because I know one problem that um, specifically Benny had in the early days of language learning was really having the confidence to actually speak. And learning Esperanto, you have, um, like I've seen people, well, I've seen polyglots in a weekend just pick up and they're speaking like, um, well, they're speaking like beginners, obviously, but they're having full conversations and just like, yeah, <laughs> that's uh, pretty hard to do in other languages. But um, and people struggled, like, um, for example, there's been studies where in schools they would teach um, one class a year of Esperanto and then um, three years of French and another group, they would teach four years of French. And the group that learned the year of Esperanto actually knew French better because they um, sort of built up also this more analytical way of looking at language where they would see the French text and they would start analyzing like what words can I, um, um, like what roots can I figure out from there and understand the meaning from. Whereas the ones who just learned French were just like looking at French. So I think there's a lot to be said about that where you don't give um, yeah, someone just starting to learn music a saxophone to start out and you want to give them something a bit uh, simpler. So they can learn music theory and then get on with a more difficult uh, instrument later. Yeah, and that was that was definitely my own personal experience when I first got into Esperanto. It's just a a side project that uh, you know a couple of weeks I'll put into this, and I figured like yourself, uh, maybe maybe it's a waste of time. Uh, I don't know what I'd get out of this. But what I the reason it is one of my core languages that I've kept up and uh, one of my favorite languages is of course the community. So like you said, there's uh, Pasporta Servo that uh, you can use for hospitality, but all of these um, actual events that once the pandemic is over, will all be kicking off again. Can you tell us a little bit about those events? What makes them special? Like why would somebody go to an event where the, the theme is just one particular language? So I think what's fascinating is you've, um, you've got a bunch of people together who don't share a native language. But you also then don't have these um, national taboos of what uh, topics you can discuss. So you, and also you'll come at it a sort of neutral point of view. Whereas, um, so for example, if I uh, meet someone from Brazil and if I'm only speaking English, they've learned all about American culture and British culture and they've, um, so they'll come at it from sort of my point of view. But if they don't have that, they'll often, um, you can just sort of get closer to the raw culture. I mean, obviously learning Portuguese for that example is the best, but I can't learn Portuguese and Hungarian and Japanese and all these languages. Whereas in this um, meeting, you can have sort of like these native experiences in a way without um, actually having to learn all these different languages, which you would love to learn, but there just isn't enough years in life to learn them all. Um, so it's a great way to sort of like, I guess you could say a stratified sampling to give a more scientific term of a way to communicate with a whole range of people that you wouldn't get with just one particular language where you only integrate. Well, there's an Esperanto culture per se. I guess it's kind of complicated to <laughs> explain it. I guess what's nice about these events is that you just, you can, 
have lunch with someone, you just sit at a table with, um, like I was saying, like a Japanese person, a Hungarian person and a Brazilian person, and you're all just speaking fluently with each other. And you don't have this whole negotiating with language or the feeling that, uh, oh, the American, we're speaking in English, so he has the superior like ability to speak. And it's um, just a very different, um, also just the power, feel of the power, um, just everyone's empowered to communicate. And I think also the, the flexible structure of Esperanto really um, also contributes to this, whereas you can choose the order of words. So there's a default subject, verb, object, but that's also flexible. So if um, um, some way of communicating is, makes more sense from your native language into Esperanto, it'll still usually make sense. So I've noticed this, to um, for example, if I'm translating a text, an Esperanto text an English speaker wrote, and then I would look at a text that a Serbian Esperanto speaker wrote. It's much easier for me to translate that text from the Esperanto speaker. I understand them both perfectly, but just that structure, it makes it easier for me to translate that back into English if the English speaker wrote it. And I just found that completely fascinating. Like you said, the, the Esperanto community and Esperanto culture does has a, have a certain uh, like underlying aspect to it. And I found that myself. I find it's it's got some kind of a conglomeration of international culture and this uh, real feeling of a sense of an international community. But even within that, there are unique parts of Esperanto events that I've personally found. So, for instance, when I'm at an Esperanto event, I I saw quiet rooms, whereas I've seen this in some other conferences with time they've started sprouting up. But I've been seeing it at Esperanto conferences right from the start. And there are particular things I tend to see at, in terms of open-mindedness at Esperanto events. I find that um, they're a lot more tolerant of people's different um, sexual orientations. And they're a lot more open to people with varied diets, for instance. And as a vegetarian, I found it extraordinarily easy to attend Esperanto events. And vegans feel that way as well. So, um, like, why do you think it's gone in that direction? And what other unique aspects of these events from Esperanto speakers have you seen yourself? Yeah, so I want to get back to the um, the quiet room. It's uh, a really good um, point to make. Um, it's in Esperanto. It's called the gufuyo, which basically means the eagle owl room. That's a way to um, basically stay up late. And uh, so if you take this um, this youth meeting, a typical Esperanto youth meeting, you'll have things like um, the the location for dancing, a place for, for drinking, like a bar. And um, so the idea is that um, say you've been, you've been drinking and you've been dancing and you're just like, I just need a break. I just need to just chill out a bit. So yeah, and one translation of this is also chill out room that people have come up with. And it's basically a room that's pretty much been established that you've got um, a large selection of tea that you can um, you can order. And then you've got, um, and sometimes you have like little um, cookies and things like that to go with the tea. It's just a very uh, um, peaceful place to, to sit and chat with your friends and uh, like, and also no alcohol is allowed there just to make it clear that it's a very different um, environment than say the bar. For example, and it's just it is really interesting how you go to like event after event, and this is just something that just tends to just always be there, and that even infiltrate a bit of the polyglot gathering, as you're aware, as um, the polyglot gathering was actually um, inspired by these Esperanto youth events. So if you've attended the polyglot gathering, you've 
experienced a bit of Esperanto culture, even without speaking Esperanto. And uh, I think one of the most amusing things about that was when I knew an, a native Esperanto speaker who went to the uh, Gufuyo at the uh, Polio gathering. He said, this is so weird to speak English here. <laughs> it was so embedded in his head that this is an Esperanto space. But he's speaking his native language, which is generally frowned upon. Well, not because you're frowned upon for speaking your native language, but you're frowned upon the fact that um, people won't understand um, your conversation. So you're you're excluding people from the conversation, basically, which is a big no-no in Esperanto culture as well. So just um, so yeah, that's another term, uh, crocodili, which means to crocodile, is um, to speak your native language when Esperanto is more appropriate, and it's not to disparage native languages to increase uh, understanding. And to my knowledge, it's the only language that has such a word. So it's also quite amusing. You just mentioned the polyglot gathering and how the Esperanto events inspired it. But can you talk a little bit more about the origin story behind the polyglot gathering? Right. So Judith um, Meyer and I attended the um, uh, polyglot conference in Budapest, the very first polyglot conference. And then we came back and she said, uh, you know, it's, it was a great event. It's a bit too academic. Like you want something more where people can really get involved. Well, basically we wanted something like Esperanto youth events where you really encourage like every hour of the day you can have interactions and um, it's not just limited to business hours per se, <laughs> but there's also a rich evening program and um, typically everyone's staying in the same location and things like that. And she, she turned to me and said, um, what would you think of organizing something like that in Berlin? I was like, ah, no. Come on, this is so much work. It's ridiculous. <laughs> you know? And eventually she kept talking about it. I'm like, all right, let's do this thing. <laughs> so she won me over. And uh, yeah, we actually ran it for three years here in Berlin before the team in uh, Slovakia took it over and ran it three years in uh, Bratislava. So um, yeah, it was just an amazing event. Um, I think, yeah, even the first year we had over 100 attendees, which was, yeah, we had 150, if I remember correctly. Whereas the Polyglot Conference first had a hundred, and it was this. Um, it was a really interesting um, thing to see the Polyglot Conference and Polyglot Gathering because they were two very different events, but yet um, just very welcoming, obviously, to people who want to learn languages and are enthusiastic about languages. Uh, it was just a great experience, I have to say, and uh, I was really disappointed this year to see it uh, cancelled, obviously because of um, COVID. It was planned to be taking place in uh, Poland. But uh, yeah, I hope it uh, continues afterwards. I just want to swing back to what I was saying before, because uh, um, I'd like people to get an, an idea of what Esperanto culture is. So other than the Gufuyo, um, what unique aspects of Esperanto culture are there? And why do you think it might be a very welcoming environment for people who might feel intimidated? I think we covered that pretty well already. Uh, just that people are much more open of... Um, uh, new ideas of um, of people in general. They're much more welcoming. Um, also, the fact that uh, we've all, well, I mean, except for the, the rare native speaker, we've all had to learn this ourselves. Um, so we we know what it's like to be the beginner and to go to our first event. So we are more welcoming when we f see the new beginner show up, as we've all experienced that before. Um, there's also a fascinating uh, set of literature you can also read from people all over the world as well. So I know um, I found it, uh, well, one particular example that was personal for me was uh, I I like playing Japanese chess, which is this, um, it's a 999 board with flat pieces and um, they're pointed in the direction that, um, you know, they attack in. And so away from the player. And uh, I was looking at the, the English books and they're all very specific books, but I found two written actually in 
Esperanto by a Japanese person. And I just was really thrilled to find these books where I could learn from a Japanese person writing directly into Esperanto, which feels much more natural to him. And there are much more general books. I was quite happy about that. And there's also a couple of Go books as well, if people know the game of Go. But uh, it's fascinating just seeing also the, the passion because people don't write Esperanto books to make money. They write Esperanto books because they want to express themselves. And you see this all over Esperanto culture, like Esperanto music. I mean, there's you don't make Esperanto music to make money. You make it because you want to reach an international community of people who um, also share your ideals of an international community. And so in every sense, it's like, and there's like over a hundred bands playing Esperanto music. And it's just really fascinating to see like what band is coming from France or, you know, wherever they're from. And also the, a few bands that are just from different countries. Cause you know, you meet it in meeting and then you start gigging together. And yeah, it's just, I don't know. It's, it's hard to cover Esperanto culture in a quick soundbite like this, but I hope I can get the, some idea across from this quick minute. Oh yeah. It's also a lot of people fan subbing movies from all over the world at uh, midnight and uh, some Esperanto events, you can go in and just see films from around the world being subtitled in Esperanto. Or you watch them being, not being subtitled, but watch this with subtitles. One thing I've always really enjoyed at the Polyglot events is that um, a lot of things that you generally don't initially expect to see in a language like Esperanto, uh, you start to, to really get immersed because of those. Like, the menus are printed in Esperanto, even though it's um, a cafeteria in a university in Slovakia or Germany or something. And then you have karaoke in Esperanto and you have Esperanto versions of game shows and things like that. So um, it's definitely uh, gives you this rich sense. And there's there's also a lot of um, other aspects, like you said, movies and even like William, William Shatner has appeared in an Esperanto, um, I forget if it was a movie or or short. What was that he, he did? It was a full, yeah, feature length film called Incubus. And um, also, if you watch it, it's the the pronunciation is terrible, so don't use it as a guide for pronunciation. But uh, yeah, I recommend I recommend if anyone's interested to to get the DVD and uh, actually watch it with the Shatner commentary because it's hilarious to just hear him talking about the events that took place around the movie. Like just, just just skip past the movie and just watch it with the commentary. It's brilliant. <laughs> so in addition to being involved in the Polyglot Gathering, there are several other projects that you've been a part of, including being a co-contributor to the Duolingo Esperanto course. Yes, so I was on the initial team of, um, of people working on the course. I had uh, helped lead, lead the direction of um, where the course would go. And it's been amazing. Like over a million people signed up to learn Esperanto on Duolingo. And it's just been a huge boon for the community. I, I think that's been, especially in the United States, I felt, is where it's been the, the biggest uh, jump because from what I've been hearing from people there is um, you had the say that you have the national Esperanto meeting that uh, takes place and it was basically like a bunch of gray-haired men sitting around <laughs> so I mean nothing wrong with that obviously but uh, in recent years uh, I went uh, a couple of years ago to the one in Seattle and was like shocked that it looked like about half the people there were uh, were young people and I'm just like what is going on here just amazing seeing this the shift and and it's mind-blowing sometimes that you hear about people going to an Esperanto club and they say, oh wow you, you're speaking really well how how long have you been learning? I learned a month ago on Duolingo. Like, what? <laughs> like, it's been amazing. It's, um, yeah, I mean, people can criticize Duolingo as a platform for learning languages, but for getting the word out about Esperanto, it's been uh, brilliant. And uh, one thing that, uh, well, that's what uh, Judith Meyer actually says, the best uh, method for learning a language is the 
well, method that you'll actually do. <laughs> so if you, you think, um, oh, I want to read the dry grammar books, that might be the, the best method for some people, but uh, for other people learning um, on um, a gamified uh, system like this, or um, like Drops, for example, is another great uh, app. Um, and obviously I recommend uh, the app I uh, work on myself, uh, Amikumu. It's a way to meet people who um, are speaking languages that you um, are interested in as well. So t tell us a bit more about Amikumu. How, how did that come about and what is it exactly? Yeah, so the basic idea was, um, well, my inspiration from it at first, well, it depends on how far back you want to go. <laughs> um, the first inspiration I had for it was actually back in 2002. I had the inspiration of a, um, when I was traveling around Brazil, I was like, there's probably Esperanto speakers around me, but I, there's no way I can find them. And um, I mean, there were GPS back then, but um Back then, they would cost like 300 or $400 um, just for a GPS. And obviously, you're not going to make a device that everyone's going to pay three or $400 for. And then you, you rewind back now about uh, five years ago, three years ago. I, yeah. And I was uh, seeing people play Pokemon Go where they were uh, finding these uh, virtual creatures. And uh, that memory of uh, 2002 came back to me. Of uh, And it was like, everyone has this GPS in their pocket right now. <laughs> So, um, and then I was talking with uh, Richard Del Delamore, also known as uh, Evil Dia on YouTube with about uh, 10,000 subscribers on his uh, YouTube channel. It's been amazing seeing that grow. And he was just, um, he had the experience of someone um, uh, in his neighborhood, actually, who was, um, he wrote on some kind of forum, like, I'm going to be in this suburb. And there was no way, except this just luck that they happened to uh, meet on here. And... And he was like, we should try to find a more systematic way to do this. So um, we made an app. So, I mean, it works best for Esperanto, but it supports over 7,000 languages. And we have had reports of people saying, like, I had signed up for this and people contacted me in this obscure language that uh, I didn't believe anyone could possibly be a member of Amikumu on. So I'm already a big fan. But I mean, in that case, you're probably not going to be meeting locally. It's probably someone 2,000 kilometers away, but you're still making contact with someone who's also probably a, someone learning the language as well. But the idea is like, say I land tomorrow in San Francisco, I can uh, pick up my phone and I look and I see, oh, there's um, someone just 200 meters away from where I'm currently at in my hotel room or wherever you're staying. And then you can say, you want to meet up for a coffee and we can uh, speak Esperanto together. And I think that's also is especially benefit now during the pandemic where like for example right now I'm I live in Berlin and we have a rule that you uh, can't travel more than 15 kilometers from your home uh, except for emergencies obviously um, but and even that you can only meet uh, one person so you can't have like even a, a couple come over and so with this app you have uh, it really facilitates one-on-one -on -one conversations which is much safer than going to a language group meetup uh, we are never imagined it for this purpose during the pandemic but um, it's obviously um, really useful now as well. And obviously you can chat in the app as well if you don't feel comfortable meeting people in person. Um, the situation is different all around the world during this time. And in addition to working on Duolingo and developing Amikumu, you've all, you're also the founder of the Esperanto Wikipedia. Um, so what's the story behind how you got involved in that? Ooh, that was a while ago now. So that was back in 2001, end of 2001. I was... Um, Actually, it's funny because I started learning Esperanto in February 2001. And so I joke that um, Esperanto is the only language where you can start learning it and in the same year start making an encyclopedia <laughs> in that language. Uh, Mind-blowing. Yeah, so in um, university, I was studying about wikis. So I did uh, my 
senior project on uh, wikis and research into that. And then I ran across Wikipedia and was like, um, and first I was like, this is a, this is a total joke. And at April it was just like, people had joke articles. And it's like, I think uh, I put in the Pennsylvania is a big uh, rectangular state, you know, <laughs> just, um, and then I came back in September and was like, wow, this thing is taking off. This is amazing. There's already like 4,000 articles. This is crazy. <laughs> Which is obviously uh, ridiculous thinking of how huge Wikipedia is now, the, the biggest nonprofit uh, website in the world. So I was uh, surfing this and like I was obviously playing around with English with it. And I was just thinking um, this really is a huge opportunity because there is no general knowledge Esperanto encyclopedia. There's, uh, there is... Uh, something called the Encyclopedia de Esperanto, which, but that was about, about people in the Esperanto movement and, um, everything about the Esperanto movement itself. And I was just saw this opportunity and I checked and I saw there existed, like in theory, the Esperanto Wikipedia. Uh, it, it just had two sentences on it, one sentence in it. Like this is, this is the Esperanto uh, Wikipedia basically. And then, that translate into Esperanto with two grammar errors in the sentence. <laughs> so, so I saw that and I, um, I actually contacted someone who was, um, working on something called the Esperanto, uh, no, Encyclopedia Kalblanda. So literally Encyclopedia Kalbland, because his name is Kalb. So, um, I contacted him and he had like, uh, I think it was like 170 articles or so. And I said, can we use your articles? Actually, I see your, your vision to have this, um, general purpose encyclopedia and he, he thought it over for a while, and a week later he came back and he said, "Yeah, let's do this. This is um, it's really big." So Stefano Kalb and I worked together, and we um, put those. We worked on just exporting all those um, articles. So um, Esperanto even had a huge bump from other languages to just have a base of articles to start with. And it was just, it was actually amazing because in the first year we were the um, fifth largest uh, Wikipedia, and for one week, which we were really proud about, we passed German. <laughs> so we're bigger than so it was like uh, what was it back in the day it was like spanish german polish and esperanto were the biggest languages in the wiki i said english i think uh, english was obviously always the biggest so and i think a lot of that was just how tight-knit the esperanto community is we can pretty much get the word out about a project super fast across the entire community i mean obviously we're not going to stay the fifth or fourth largest uh, Wikipedia forever because other languages have much huger populations. But it was amazing just to see back then and also just seeing the perspectives of coming together on articles and like, how do you name wars <laughs> in Esperanto? Because um, people, you know, countries will name wars based on their own, from per their own perspective and just became very, like very fascinating philosophical discussions. I think for me, the two biggest ones were continents because in America, we're taught there's seven continents. And other countries are taught there's five continents. And we're just like, well, how do we solve this problem? And then we have to basically just say, there are five, six, or seven continents based on where you're from. <laughs> just fascinating stuff that you would never come across if you're just working on an encyclopedia with people of your own country. And also, we had this debate about um, how do we um, deal with years, like years before zero, because um, it just became this whole conversation about is like before Christ, is that just too like uh, Christianity centric. And uh, then eventually, and Esperanto to my knowledge is the only Wikipedia that does this. We have, we actually just settled on negative years in the Wikipedia. <laughs> you have the year minus five, which is like, it's so logical. It makes sense. 
was so unusual, obviously. And just seeing those, like those discussions were just so fascinating and the perspectives you get. Um, and you just get a much more neutral articles in Esperanto. I mean, it's not as rich as natural languages because you just have so many people. I mean, you just have so many English speakers. Um, I mean, you can argue that you've got English speakers from Australia, America, Canada, and the UK working heavily in these articles. You're also getting an international perspective, but it's a very different international perspective than when you're getting an Hungarian and a Japanese person. And I keep going back to the same nationalities, but I think that <laughs> they're good examples of uh, what kind of collaboration you get in Esperanto as compared to the English Wikipedia. And you've brought uh, experience in, ter in terms of helping people learn languages from other um, projects as well. And people listening to this may recognize your voice from the German Pod 101 series. So what what is your story in in getting into that? How did that happen? So that was also a, a project of units that I <laughs> jumped in on because she basically um, so German Pod One Hundred One is a um, I guess you'd say it's a, a franchise from well, not really a franchise but a spinoff from Japanese Pod One Hundred One, which is a very popular um, podcast um, from an American living in Japan, and their their podcasts tend to be a native speaker paired with uh, well. I think an English native speaker tends to be usually an American. And so I said, well, we're here, so <laughs> why not? Um, we could just do that. And we've set up a studio. And obviously my um, point was just to become, just to be um, one of the, well, I don't see panelists, but uh, speakers on the show. So she um, she did all the work of um, like the scripts and um, uh, so much work she was doing, <laughs> and also the the post editing, the post production as well. And then send, oh no, she didn't do post. She would send the um, raw files to Japan, and then they get edited by someone there. So my participation was basically going to the studio every week, every two weeks. I don't remember the schedule. It was a many years ago and just sitting there and um, just recording our lines and just being very, um, I guess, very casual about it and almost making a character. We almost had a characterization of me as being this uh, lazy person who was uh, also drinking and partying a lot just to throw in a little um, yeah, flavor to the um, episodes. But it was really amazing the day we hit, uh, we recorded over a hundred episodes. And being, I mean, episodes only like three or four minutes, but still having uh, recorded that much. Okay, sorry, you, you did sitting next to me and uh, <laughs> chiming in as well here. <laughs> So she said we recorded over 500 episodes. Um, blows my mind because I thought we just recorded over over 100. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, it's been fascinating. And even um, I worked at a um, game studio here in Berlin. Um, it's about uh, 200 people working there. And three people there came up to me and said, uh, I recognized your voice from the podcast I was listening to. <laughs> so they had actually just organically started. I mean, however, anyone picks up a podcast and uh, we're listening and there's Chuck and Judith, they both work here. <laughs> they recognize this voice. <laughs> Thank, you. Thank you so much for um, your work on German Pod. I was like, oh, you're welcome. For me, it was always this little side project. But uh, just um, really a cool thing. And uh, uh, if you um, hear what uh, might be uh, my radio voice that came from that uh, <laughs> those studio recordings and just getting into the hang of just sitting there in front of a microphone in the studio, and your, your voice just trains itself after a while and you start to sound more like a radio personality. So one of the questions that we always like to ask the guests on the podcast, since this is the language hacking podcast, is what is your definition of language hacking? Ooh, oh, that's a tricky one. Uh, I think it's more um, finding out what works for you because everyone um, has their own methods. Um, so what works for Benny may definitely not work for Professor Aguelas. They're very different um, methods. And another friend, Luke, always learns with um, listening, reading 
where you're just um, like you're reading a book while you're listening to it over audio and parallel text. And um, for some people, that would be like terrible. And some people like Benny would just want to start speaking from day one. And other people would be completely horrified by it, (laughs) by that concept. And I think it's really, to me, language hacking is like, what do you want to get out of language learning? Because I know my cousin, for example, he, um, his biggest thing was learning. um, He wanted to really understand Japanese anime. And that was really what he wanted to focus on. And he got to where he would get a, he could understand Japanese anime. And he would go to Japan and um, for a couple of weeks and, and also be able to converse there. But uh, just figuring out, like, what exactly do you want to do? Do you want to mostly read? Do you want to mostly, like, travel to the country and talk to people? And for everyone, it's a, just something different. And I think for me, uh, language hacking is figure out exactly what is your goal? What do you really want to do with the language you're learning? And it could be different for different languages as well. So, um, and then find out what methods are most useful for you to reach your goal as quickly as possible. So don't just hear, oh, my teacher said this, and then you said, oh, I should learn this way. I need to sit down with my grammar book. But um, really, what are your goals? If you want to just go to a country and speak, a grammar book is definitely not the best way to reach that goal. Your best, I would recommend, well, there's one of these audio courses, for example, where you're repeating back things, you're answering things. And yeah, so that's basically it for me. What I would say, um, just um, go at whatever you want, find the methods that uh, help you reach your goals. Absolutely. Okay, well, I'll be sure to leave uh, links in the show notes to uh, all the things you've been working on. But before we wrap up, um, other than obviously when travel becomes possible and you can potentially have language learning missions, what are your upcoming projects and how do you see things like Amikumu developing and what's your future in language learning? Yeah, so right now I'm working really hard on Amikumu. We're um, working actually to make it uh, open source. That's our biggest um, goal because we really, I mean, first we're focused more, a bit more like the the capitalist, let's build a company and business and make money. And, and we're sort of just seeing the way things are moving. It's, we really want to push this more into a community project, uh, make the uh, client like the open source. And uh, so I'm um, exporting everything to an open source cross-platform project. And that's uh, really what I'm focusing on right now. Um, besides that, um, yeah, that's really what I'm pushing uh, with the pandemic. It's pretty hard to plan anything these days. So... Yeah, that's pretty much where it stands right now. Um, also doing um, some uh, translation for drops on the side as well. It's been really um, a rewarding project to um, see, to work with people from around the world again and uh, to make this a platform for people to learn languages as well. So sorry if I can't give you too much long-term stuff here. I don't have much cooking up right now, but uh, sort of playing the, the startup role of um, let's um, get things moving and then see where we should uh, go from there rather than the, uh, this is the 20-year plan of what I'm going to do with my life. <laughs> No, that's that's all you need is uh, the project keeping you busy. And uh, you're definitely making a significant dent in the language learning world and in Esperanto especially. So um, thank you very much for that. It's uh, it's becoming easier and easier for people to learn this language. It's a particular passion of mine. So really appreciate you coming on and uh, sharing your own story with us. So maybe the people listening will be inspired to dive into the language themselves. And thank you yourself as well for all the work you've done in uh, the language learning community. It's been uh, amazing watching your work (laughs) through the years. Thank you. Appreciate that. And you too, obviously, Shannon. I don't want to leave you out there. (laughs) Obviously, Shannon, of course. (laughs) Just leave me out, okay? (laughs) All right. So with with that all said, thank you so much for coming on. Appreciate it. And um, until the next time, 
a very happy language learning. Happy language learning. Happy language learning. So at the end of every episode, Benny and I like to go over something that we learned in our discussion with the guest on the podcast. And this is something that we feel is immediately actionable so that at the end of each episode, you have something that you can take away and put into practice right away in your language learning. So I'm going to go ahead and start with this one and then I'll ask you, Benny. For me, the one thing that Chuck said that really stood out is about how important it is to find what works for you and that something that may work for one learner, for example, for you, Benny, may not work for me. And I think that this is something that we perhaps all intuitively know, but we forget in the greater scheme of things because we kind of get distracted with trying to find the best resource, trying to read reviews of resources from other learners, seeing what other learners are because we have a little bit of FOMO and think maybe there's something someone else may be doing that's better. And so we tend to kind of look at what everyone else is doing and think, okay, I should do that. I should do that. I should do that. I should do that. But maybe you shouldn't be doing any of those things and you should be trying stuff out, but then coming up with a method that works for you. And I know, Benny, you and I have slightly different methods to how we learn languages. For example, you are uh, a bit monogamous when you take on a language project where I... tend not to be. And I am totally fine learning multiple languages at the same time. So it's all about just finding what really works for you. What about you, Benny? What was your takeaway from this episode? So there were a lot of things and uh, I'm very glad that we got to share the Esperanto story. But one thing I think is um, not directly related to language learning uh, per se, but I think um, can be very relevant is when Chuck was saying that um, just by growing Wikipedia the way he did, it very quickly became the fifth largest Wikipedia that exists. And we all know Wikipedia. It's like one of the hugest websites out there. And I think this is a good reminder that in all of our projects, including language learning, if you just plant that seed, you would be amazed by how quickly it might grow. And a lot of us have this idea that it's too late to start things. It's too late to start any personal project. And as you see, uh, Chuck just happened to decide, you know what, I'm going to start this Wikipedia. It's in Esperanto, which is not one of the most major spoken languages in the world. And yet it grew, it exploded in popularity. And I'm reminded of this myself so many times that if I wait too long to start something, then I'm I'm just putting off what could have been a much bigger amount of momentum to get me somewhere faster. And with language learning, I get a lot further than I think I would in a lot of situations. So I always tell people, please don't wait until the timing is just right. Just start today. And Chuck's story of of exploding Wikipedia um, is a good reminder of that, I think. Yeah, and the other thing that you risk too is if you wait, that perfect moment never arrives and you never get started. So one of the best things you can do is just get started. All right, that is it for this episode of the Language Hacking Podcast. We hope you enjoyed it. And as a quick reminder, if you do enjoy the podcast, we really appreciate your reviews. So please leave us a review at languagehacking.com slash review. And again, everything mentioned in this episode is available to you in the show notes. So we will see you next time. Until then, happy language learning. Happy language learning. We hope you enjoyed this episode of the Language Hacking Podcast. Subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, YouTube, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you found this episode valuable and want to help us out, please leave a review at languagehacking.com forward slash review. 
The Language Hacking Podcast is presented by Benny Lewis and Shannon Kennedy and produced by David Sobel, with special thanks to the Fluent in Three Months team. Theme music was written and performed by Shannon Kennedy. Find the show notes at languagehacking.com forward slash podcast. Thanks for listening and happy language learning.